I'm Deb Ondo, and this is What's Art Got to Do With It? Conversations about aesthetic experiences and approaches to art and life. Today, I talk with New York-based author, poet, and musician Elizabeth Cunningham. Elizabeth is best known for The Maeve Chronicles, a series of award-winning novels featuring a feisty Celtic Magdalene. She also recorded Maven Song, an album of original music from the Maeve Chronicles. Elizabeth has published four collections of poems, a mystery novel, Murder at the Rummage Sale, and All the Perils of This Night, a standalone thriller and sequel to Murder at the Rummage Sale. She is a fellow emeritus of Black Earth Institute and writes regularly for the Feminism and Religion blog site. There's conversation and music ahead. Let's get to it. You know, I think an appropriate place to start would be your spiritual background. Oh, yeah. Well, and you can find out more about it in Murder at the Roman Sale because that is set in 1960 when I was a kid. So I grew up in a small town in the Hudson Valley. My father was the Episcopal priest of a small church in, I guess, it was a the 1950s and early 60s. And so I grew up in the churchyard and in the church. And I think that, as I've said a number of times, it's, I mean, that gave me a lot of primary material. I mean, that gave me a lot to work through, but it also gave me a lot to work with because the liturgy and the language that I was exposed to so young through hearing rather than through reading, not that I write like the King James version of the Bible, but it gave me a sense Words have to have sound and rhythm. Mm. And a lot can be forgiven because there are some pretty scary words, but they were beautiful. So Very scary words. And, uh, very scary words. And it's scary when your father, my father wasn't a warm and fuzzy father. And, you know, in those days, the minister always was above the congregation in the pulpit. I mean, now they like to get, you know, like to come down and, you know, shake your hands and, be folks but not them right they they were up there and jesus up there and god was there and and next door was um a woods that had um, gotten overgrown and fallen into disuse an old estate and there was a of course no trespassing sign on it and so episcopalians when they say the lord's prayer they say forgive us our trespasses so that got completely merged in my mind Going over the wall into the woods, yeah. Yeah, and how wonderful, how enchanting. What did that place become for you? The experience of walking from one world into another really has affected probably every book I've written. There's Mm -hmm. always some sense of going between the worlds. Yeah. And over that gap in the wall. Because eventually we did get permission to walk there, but there were a couple of times I really seriously trespassed. And the other really scary thing from my childhood was that my father's name was Cunningham and the town constable's name was Cunningham. So law, religion, fathers, God, going into the forbidden wood, it was all, you know, like I say, it's pretty good material. And I'm still, I think I'm still working with it. I've worked with it, you know, in one way or another, most of my life. You know, you were young in that space and all these other things were quite large. So there's there's the largeness that comes from simply being a child, right? A child, yeah. And, and so how long were you in that space? I, my father, when I was 
12, I think 12, maybe just turning 13. My okay. father decided, and this was probably the almost the mid 60s, he decided that he he wanted to be an activist. Hmm. And he was an activist, even within the parish church. And he was always organizing things and, and being ecumenical before anybody else was. He was the first Episcopal minister to join the fire department. <laughs> and that, and, and he, he was the first Episcopal minister to go to a Roman Catholic wake. So the people of the town really loved him. And he also, he wanted to go to the fireman's clam bakes. And after the clam bake, when the women and the children went home, the men drank beer and they watched film. And somebody said, oh, <clears throat> father, I want to go home now. And he said, hell no. <laughs> so he stayed and watched the pornographic films with the firemen and drank beer. He was that kind of a minister. He was very, um, he really was a social gospel minister. And he went to, um, he went to march and with Martin Luther King. He was very passionate about civil rights. And that really comes out a lot in the book that I just published, All the Perils of This Night. So he left the parish ministry to, I think the, I think you'd call it be a community organizer with the Office of Economic Opportunity, which lived for a little while under the Johnson administration in the war on poverty. Do you have any recollections of the congregation or the you know the people that would attend the church? I think it was very interesting. I see now, you know, a lot of people sort of grew up in the little separate house and the little separate yard, but I grew up in the midst of a community. Mm. So people were always coming and going, which I think was very hard on my mother, which is reflected in the book. But I remember a lot of the parishioners and they re they really show up, portraits of them show up in Murder at the Roman Jail. And my sister and I were in the choir, I think, before we could read. I think we probably learned to read music and words simultaneously. And there was a very peppery little organist, brilliant musician. I think she was a refugee from Germany. I, her stories, I tried to recreate it a little bit in Murder at the Roman Cell, but she was a very fierce, fierce musician. I think I really bonded with the woman that I modeled Lucy Way on, who I call my fairy godmother. I, I sort of discovered her in my teens rather than in my childhood. But all those people are quite vivid to me because it was the 50s and 60s. Some women worked, but a lot of women um, were home. And so their need to work and do things and create was they, they went to things like the church or became members of the garden club or volunteered at this and that. That was the, how they had an outlet. So there was a lot of women around. And they, you know, they ran the portion supper and they ran the rummage sale and they ran everything. Right. So I think that probably, yeah, definitely affected me to grow up in a community like that. It wasn't at all self The feminism wasn't happening then as any of them knew. But mm -hmm. there were a bunch of strong women around for sure. I also understand that at some point in your life, you became a Quaker. Yeah. Well, that happened to along with my marriage because I married someone who's basically an agnostic or an atheist and when he would go to church with me he'd be like I feel like an anthropologist I'm in a strange culture this is too weird when we lived in Florida I could not find an Episcopal church I tried to find an Episcopal church I don't think I've ever told this story the Episcopal minister came to visit Douglas and I before we were married and he came in a big ecclesiastical outfit with a huge pectoral cross and he wanted to discuss the fact that we were living in sin 
And he also was very concerned because I had mentioned that I was writing The Wild Mother. And The Wild Mother has at its heart Lilith, who is sort of the apocryphal first wife of Adam. Right. But in his mind, Lilith was a demon. So he wanted to say, oh my goodness, there's this woman living in sin, maybe worshiping demons. I think I better get over there to this little shack in the swamp. And that was my, I think that was the last time I tried to go to the Episcopal church. And I think before he left, he said, you know, I hope I see, I, I mean, I hope you'll be in church again next Sunday because I, it's really upsetting to me because sometimes I visit people and I never see them again. <laughs> yeah. And he never saw us again. Yeah, and Douglas said that he was an agnostic, told the guy he was an agnostic, and he said, well, do you know what agnostic is in Latin? <laughs> Ignoramus! <laughs> so, yeah, I found a Quaker meeting. Yes, I can. And as soon as I found a Quaker meeting, I thought, oh, and I had some Quaker ancestors on my mother's side, but I didn't really know Quakers very well. But I loved the fact that we sat in a circle face to face. That's where you found God, not up there, but in the person sitting across from you. I loved the silence and I loved the fact that you didn't have to sit there, a captive audience to some minister, that anybody who was moved to speak spoke. Yes. From the silence. And I loved that. Yes. I mean, there I have this passage in where Maeve has to go to a synagogue in Nazareth or something. And I don't know, there's people giving little sermonettes. And she amuses herself by counting all the places where they could have ended it. I used to do that. I still do that. If I have to listen to a sermon, it's like, that's a good, that would be a good place to end it. And they usually go six more times. On and on and on. Yeah. And on. It's like, no, that's a really good ending sentence. Yeah, 10 false endings. Oh, good God. Yes. So I love the Quake. And not that somebody couldn't go on and on as a Quaker, but they didn't have that kind of I'm the minister and you have to listen to me. It's like the spirit moves them, the spirit moves them. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And anyone could speak. And I loved that. So there's a, a gap of time in our conversation here where you were young, you were living in, in um, New York with your, your parents and you moved, you were in Florida, you became a Quaker, you were mm-hmm. with Douglas. We were Quakers when we came back here too. We were Quakers when you came back. Yeah. And all right, so that's significant. Oh yeah. Yeah. Yeah, um, and I still, um, Quaker process where Quakers, they do things by consensus or what they call the sense of the meeting, which is not voting. That was the most, va- a very valuable thing to learn from Quakers. Mm. I use that actually as a counselor. I help people find consensus in, in within themselves. Yes. yes and that's it's useful with families. All of the things that I learned from Quakers are really good for when you work with people. Yeah. In that span of time, you became a writer. Well, actually, I became a writer before that. Okay. I mean, I think I always wanted to write, but I began writing The Wild Mother, which was my first novel in my uh, senior year at college. Okay. Oh, there's a story there too, because I thought, oh, I went to um, take summer courses so that I could save room for a creative writing course my last semester. And you had to apply. So I applied and I, you know, submitted a short story and I got rejected. Mm. You know, it would have been a, I think it would have been a class on how do you get published in the New Yorker, probably. And I was, but I was devastated. And I had my American literature professor was very he was very helpful and sympathetic and I said I don't I don't need to take another credit I don't want to take another class 
So he basically mentored me. He's the one who I kept writing these things that were supposedly realistic, but I didn't really know what I was talking about. And he said, go home and think about fairy tales. Mm. There are only five or six plots in the world. You don't have to worry about it. There, think about fairy tales. And that's how the wild mother came to me. And he told me at one point, I can't remember when it was, he says, you don't have to write a term paper. You write whatever you want to write. Wow. And I started writing The Wild Mother and turned that in. He was a wonderful mentor. Yeah, what a difference like that can make in our lives. And also that to come out of being really crushed by being rejected, which was yeah. all the first of millions of rejections. But, um, but I got set on my path. I'm talking with author, poet, and musician Elizabeth Cunningham. If you're enjoying this episode, please head over to iTunes and submit a review so more listeners can find us. Next, Elizabeth recounts how she found her way as a writer. Can you speak to why you why you write? What was there for you? Well, I think that a lot of writers really begin as avid readers. They love stories from the beginning. I loved fairy tales. And of course, you know, I also heard the stories in the Bible. So story mm -hmm. was like, it was a way of life. Yeah. And of course, I wanted to write my own stories. And I remember one thing C.S. Lewis said, I don't, he was a big influence. Narnia was a big influence. And he said, and I don't know when I heard this, he said, I write the stories I want to read. And I think that, that that stayed with me and it still stays with me because I've never, I've never really quite fit a niche or a market category, but I've always written the stories that I wanted to read. And my mother, my father was very discouraging. My father did not want me to be a writer. He was rather vicious about it. But my mother was quietly encouraging. And she noticed that I, she noticed that I liked to write. And she put me in a creative writing class one summer. And so I was like, yeah, I don't really want to be Cherry Ames or Sue Barton. Although, of course, I probably thought I did because that's the kind of books girls read. But I think my mother really helped make it okay for me to say I wanted to be a writer, even though my father made it not. Did you ever find out why your father was? Oh. I have my suspicions. Uh, well, there's a number of things. One is I think that he actually wanted to be an English major and probably wanted to write, and his he was shamed for it. And I believe his father before him was shamed for it mm. because in the kind of social gospel world that I grew up in and that they grew up in, because he was a minister, his father was a minister, his father was a minister, direct service was really the only thing that was considered service. Mm -hmm. Anything to do with the arts, well, it could be, like my grandfather wrote doggerel on for occasions, but it was frivolous and it was self-indulgent. And it was, you know, it wasn't, my father told me, and I've told this story many times, that I could not write because I knew nothing of the world. And I mm -hmm. would really have to be a social worker before I could write. He might have said I should go into the ministry, but women didn't do that until 1976. They they couldn't be ordained. Right. Do you think he said that to you because you're a woman? Do you think he would have said that to you if you were his son? No, I think he might have. I mean, he wasn't really in favor of writing. Okay. 
Um, and I think partly because he was a frustrated writer, right. a frustrated English major. He went back to he went back to get his master's at one point, and he I don't know if he I don't think he completed it, but he was going to do it on D. H. Lawrence. So one of the things that I did was go into my father's study. I found Lady Chatterley's Lover, and I also found Victorian porn. <laughs> so I learned words like quim <laughs> and quivering. The happy hooker in my father's office and my mother and I both read it and found it really interesting. <laughs> <laughs> she just was an interesting character. Oh, it's great. I love it. Your process. Is there anything that you would like to, to share with respect to your process? It involves a lot of procrastination. <laughs> I mean, not procrastination in the sense that I don't show up every day, but every day it's hard. And um, I, now I write on the computer, but for many years I wrote two hand drafts in a spiral notebook, writing on every other line so that I could scribble and cross out. And I developed a saying, if you can't read it, you don't need it. <laughs> I apply that as I revised. But I think one of the things I'd like to say about process, I had a really hilarious dream once where I was on stage and I had my little spiral notebooks and I wrote and then I got up and I went to the bathroom and then I did this and I did that and I did the other thing and then I came back and I wrote some more and then I held up my scribbly notebook with two pages filled and I said, ladies and gentlemen, believe it or not, this is how novels get written. I think right now what I do is I do um, a little bit of a poem journal then I also have a little talk with the muse, who is sometimes we're working out the problems in the story, and sometimes she's like my therapist. And then it's like, okay, we really have to work on the story now. And <laughs> believe it or not, this is how novels get written. How did Maeve show up? Oh, and I, sh I should have brought one. Of the, I, I don't have the um, Book of Madge, but, but she's very naked too. Um, <laughs> I had finished writing The Return of the Goddess, a divine comedy, which was the first time I realized that I was involved with the goddess. So I wrote about it and I said it at that same church where I grew up. And I put everything into it. And then I thought, I have nothing more to say. I'm done saying anything. An artist friend suggested that I draw for a while. So I got magic markers and I started to scribble. And then there she was. And I didn't know her name was Madge, but she told me pretty quick. And she was sitting naked in the kitchen drinking coffee at about three o'clock in the afternoon, which turns out to be the time of day I was born. I may have run out of things to say, but she hadn't. She needed a lot of cartoon balloons. And so I thought, wow, what a great character. And she also told me she was a prostitute, no question, because she was a painter and she was having a hard time making a living. So she no bones about it. That's what she did. And I thought, wow, you're a great character. Would you like to be in my next novel? And she said, I don't know. We'll see. I kept thinking of ideas, and one of them involved her being a retired prostitute going off to Maine. She says, I'm not ready to be a retired anything. <laughs> she said, you make me my book. You make me a book of cartoons, and then we'll talk. So she actually got a book of cartoons, which is now called The Book of Madge, which I wrote during the first Gulf War, which was back in 1990, and actually only lasted six weeks. 
which is amazing to think of now. And there actually were congressional hearings about it where people yeah. held forth. Yeah. And so I drew a lot while I was listening to that. And so she got, she was a peace prostitute and she got her book and then she was satisfied with that. And then one night it was very warm. I think I may have in February and I may have gone out in the moonlight naked possibly, I can't remember now. But it came to me, I have been talking to my husband about Mary Magdalene, and it came to me that Magdalene and Madge had a lot of the same letters. And she had this very, very red, red, fiery orange hair. And I thought, oh, what if you were red hair, Celt? What if you were the Celtic Mary Magdalene? How about that book? And she's like, yeah, finally. Mm. by that I never knew whether she meant that she was ready for that or she was waiting for that or that's who she was or that that was sufficiently outrageous to appeal to her it could be could be all the above right yeah all of the above so that's how she started and that also really affected she already had a voice so instead of saying oh I'm going to write this book set in the first century I did write four books set in the first century but the narrator can be completely immersed in the first century telling you moment by moment what's happening. And she can also come out and talk to you as if she's there in the room with you. And she can have a very sassy contemporary voice, and she does. Yes. So it's really kind of different from a lot of historical novels because its premise is, and it really does immerse you in the history, but she can also say, hey, I'm telling you this story. I need you to hear it. I haven't been able to tell it before just so full of wisdom and and yet this very willful strong independent woman who just puts it all out there and never convert right right she is the lover of jesus but not a disciple right she loves him i love that she ain't gonna follow him this story begins in the night there will be a dawn i promise out of this menagerie, this amazing collection, you created music. Yeah, and that's because um, I went on tour and I um, was inspired by a couple of friends, Tom Cowan and Rihanna Mirabello. I heard them do a recital of Mary Oliver's poems and they memorized them. So I said, oh, that's so different from reading. I'm not going to do a reading. I'm going to memorize. A passage. I'm going to memorize the prologue because I, Passion of Mary Magdalene was the first book I really toured with a lot. And in order to memorize, the Celts have a, um, the ancient Celts call um, learning your lessons or memorizing to sing over. So I would sing to, as a memory aid. And that's how. Hmm. And so I said, oh, I like how that prologue sounds. I'm just going to walk out and hit them with the prologue. So that's what I did. With each book, I found other songs. Well, I have Into the Night and I have the Pent- Pentecostal Alley Blues. What do you think we should play? I think you should play Into the Night first because that's the one that I opened with Yes. hundreds of times in hundreds of um, performances. Okay. Let's do that. Okay, so here we go. This story begins in the night. There will be a dawn, I promise. I will also tell of mornings when I didn't want to wake And noons full of harsh light and judgment Sometimes there will be ease and shade 
in the afternoon camaraderie and rest even pleasure there will be passion i promise morning noon and night season after season a passion that breaks time open wide so you can taste the mystery inside well this story begins in the night it begins in the middle of the story in the middle of the night when the thief comes when the bridegroom comes when the bride has alone since given up hope And those foolish virgins less knowing when only a hope is awake I I need to give some credits here. I did not have the wonderful piano with me when I was on tour. Tim Curington, Dillinger Curington and Ray Jurington Dillinger are my publishers now. And I think in 2009, I met Tim and he said, and I sang that bit of prologue for him. He said, oh, well, you know, we're going to go to Nashville, which is where he was from, and record it. And I'll I'll find musicians. And so the man on the piano is um, Ron Gilmore. And he's a brilliant, brilliant, brilliant <laughs> musician. And he improvised with me. Yeah, it's I mean, beautiful. He was improvising. My, I knew what I was singing. And I there's another, there's, few other songs that he three or four four um songs that he also plays on that he just came in the studio and he played he got it we didn't rehearse wow so thank you ron gilmore thank you tim dillinger thank you ray curington thank you everybody who helped and and i am gonna blank when we get to the guitar i'm afraid i'm gonna blank on the musician's name but you should make sure you look if you get the album look who it is so Thanks to all the musicians that supported that album. Elizabeth, what has Maeve brought to you? Has she changed you at all? Or have you changed her? Or She's tried. I mean, people think, I think people make the mistake of thinking that I am Maeve mm. or that Maeve is modeled on me, but really I'm more modeled on her. Maeve um, doesn't, she goes through a lot of troubles, which... You know, she gets enslaved. She has a hard time. She goes through many tragedies. But the way she was raised, she was the daughter of eight warrior witch mothers on an island of women. And they just thought she could do no wrong. She was so great. She So Maeve, unlike many women, most women, probably most people, but especially women, had she had very high self-esteem. She loved herself. She loved her body. And she had no shame no concept of shame the only the first experience she had of shame was when she was enslaved because among celts that was a shame that was a source of terrible shame right so she she um matured but you, yeah this very brazen willful young woman she is in magdalene rising it's like wow and i have women say i wish i had been raised like that hail all mothers graceful or not God or goddess is with you, believe it or not. So I think that she gave 
um, a lot of women, including me, a taste of what what would it be like to be raised, to have no question that you love your body and you love yourself and you are all that. It's never too late to think about that, to let that who you are. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and I can't recommend your the Mave series enough. It's just, it's spectacular. It's life-changing. And, and I, I know people who have said after they've read your books that it has changed their life. And I can say the same thing. These are, are works of art that deserve your attention. Oh, thank you, Deb. And yeah, and I think the thing about Maeve that still amazes me, and I don't think every writer gets to have this, I feel very lucky. She lives in other people's lives so independently. She's just not, she doesn't just stay in the book. Yeah, yes. And I love that true. about her. Yes. She gets around. I don't even know what she gets up to. She, she does get around. She yeah, and I, I don't know. She may inspire people to do some things that, well, I'm not going to be responsible for them. I, um, yeah, I, yeah, I think it's all good. Yeah, and it's all good. She's a good, she is good. She yes. is Excellent. Just because she has no shame doesn't mean that she has no morals. She does. I'd like to play the other song, Pentecostal Alley Blues, because I think it's perfect for right this minute. And then and that we'll comes in the third book when yeah. she's already had her life with Jesus and got not. Well, you'll find out. We will not give any secrets away. Yeah. There are um, no no spoilers. No spoilers here, but we'll play this song and then we'll um we'll move into your poetry. just playing a snippet tonight yeah you know i also want to say i really would love to someday see these made into a, a series uh, on one of the streaming yeah, platforms from the beginning it just feels like that's something has to happen here so if there's yeah. anybody out there listening let's think about that right talk to elizabeth these books <clears throat> deserve to have a series all right poetry what how did poetry sneak in there it snuck <laughs> And I probably was still, I still primarily identify as a novelist and a storyteller. But I don't know. I mean, I think, I, I know, I always wrote it. I used to call it emergency poetry because there was nothing else I could do. But then I forget exactly when it was, probably almost 10 years ago now. I decided that I really did not want to write a prose journal anymore, that I was tired of hearing myself. 
And so I decided, well, whatever you say, you've got to write. It's got to be in some kind of a form of, as a poem. You've got to distill it. And that, and I had full license to write terrible poems. I just didn't want to hear about my problems anymore. So <laughs> I started to write a poetry journal. And and gradually over the years, it sort of started just like, well, it's a poem because I say it's a poem. It's a poem, you know. Yeah. But I, I got really interested in forms as well. And I would not say that I'm primarily a poet, but I've written a lot of poetry. Would you share this evening? Yeah. So this is my latest collection. And it's a little different because I would say that all the other ones are, you know, poems that I wrote and I'm the poet. And, you know, I like them well enough. But in this one, there's all these different voices. There are trees that speak. There are stones that speak. There's someone called Ancient Dreamer. There's someone called Temple Sweeper. There's a lot of different characters. There, I, I wrote, they started coming right after I finished, because I want to hold this up again. <laughs> after I finished this book, which is a big, fat novel set in, the, in 1968, and it's pretty serious subject matter. It has, it's fun and funny in places too, but it's, it's set in this world. It's, um, it has elements of fairy tale. All my books do, Wait Till You Meet Robin Hoodlum. But I just couldn't write anything. I couldn't write anything like that anymore. And I was writing these voices. I had been writing them before I started that book. And I thought, I'll just keep going. And then I wrote that book. And then I came back. So this is a book of all these voices that I heard when I moved to the Schwangang. Because there's amazing stones here. There's amazing rivers mm -hmm. here. And I think a lot of us are sort of thinking about what would it be like to just be wandering around the last, I don't know, it's very, it's a very imaginative book. There are so many different, I can read you the, I'll just read you what the voices are. Scribe, Mother Rain, Sorrow Singer, Gray Cat, Gray Mouse, Courage Singer, Temple Sweeper, Sword Woman, Goat Boy, Mother Goat, Stone Mountain, Ravens, Ancient Dreamer, The Man Who Does Not Speak, Merry Drunk, Morose Fool, Great Oak, Stream, Stillness, Red Oak, Skeleton Woman, she's fun. And the grannies, Onyx, Opal, Ruby, and Lapis Lazuli, the bear, the children, Flying Pig. So I published this book last year myself, and it's available. And I, I think it's really different. What I'm going to do is a really, really, really short one because I can, because I remember it. We did, I did a performance with Rebecca Singer and other people last year. And I'm going to speak it, and then I'm going to sing it. And it is about story. And I think in a lot of ways, it's about our time because we're so worried about what is going to happen. And is it, you know, the worst going to happen? Is it, We don't know. But anyway, this poem is called The Scribe's Path. When rivers carry mountains to the strand, the scribe must stand midstream to catch the muddy gold in her hand. And when she sees the sea rise to meet the land, she must remember. Every story holds the power to surprise. When rivers carry mountains to the strand, the scribe must stand midstream to catch the muddy gold in her hand. And when she sees the sea rise, to meet the land, she must remember, she must remember, she must remember, 
Every story holds the power to surprise. Every story holds the power to surprise. Elizabeth, I've heard you talk lately about a shift in, in consciousness and I think the shift is happening in, 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 our, in our world. I know I ascribe to it. And it's this realization, this acknowledgement that the natural world is not other, that we yeah. are very much a part of the natural That's world. What the book is about. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And I think in some ways it's not new. It's very old. And some peoples have always known yeah. that, um, you know, first of all, that the earth is one organism. I don't, we're an expression of it, I guess. Sometimes I'm like, what was I thinking? Um, but, you know, that all the, the trees, the plants, the insects, the birds, the fish, everything is a being. Right. I like to call them beings. Like my kitty, who's been here the whole time, she's a feline being, and there are arboreal beings. And um, I think that people are finding out, uh, they're finding out a lot of things that probably, like I say, other people's always knew, but Mm-hmm. One of the things they're finding out is that trees can communicate absolutely through, their, through the mycelium. Yep. Um, and that they, there might be trees that have issues with each other, but trees also help each other. That they're not, um, they're not. We think, oh, there's this tree it's standing there; it's by itself, tree. But it's actually part of a community, and we're part of its community. And all the birds and the squirrels and everything around it are part of its community. I've come to the point where, you know, sometimes I write about how much I like solitude and I like to be alone, but then I think I'm not alone. I can't say I like to be alone outside because when I'm outside, I'm not alone. Right. Not at all. Right. I'm with all those other beings. And it humbles me to think that, I mean, there's a lot of, um, I do recognize a lot of my neighbors, but I bet they know a lot more about me than I know about them. They say, oh, there's a thing she comes out every time about this time. Yeah, I think that we had a horrible idea of thinking that things were inert or not sensate or the animals had lesser intelligence. They don't. Everything has intelligence. I think that is a shift that many people are. We have to become aware of it. We have to. We We can't go on doing what we're doing. We can't go on just saying, oh, well, there's oil there. Let me take it. It seems like part of our evolutionary process. Yeah. And as we get a little bit deeper into this crisis mode with the planet, I think that this awakening had to happen. And it's it's so frustrating that there are people who don't don't yet understand it. And there and there there will be people who who pass through this earthly realm who who don't ever understand it, who don't ever get it. Um, and I think it's up to us, you know, as artists or as as human beings. Who, who feel this strongly about this, to have conversations, to start start talking about it with our families and friends. And to start listening to the things that are trying to talk to us. Yes, indeed. Yeah. You know, you said when you go out, when you go outside and you're, you know, you walk alone and you're not alone. And it's an extraordinary way to be with other beings. It's yeah. just, you know, go for a walk in the woods or just be, be. Pay attention. You know, yeah, just to pay attention, to really, really just be present. So the, the premise of the show is what's art got to do with it? And artists and, and culture bearers more and more, you know, are 
not only witnessing, but, you know, participating, we're influencing, disrupting. You know, there's this idea about artistic intervention, which I would, I would posit that, that maybe we artists are always intervening in some way. And I'm wondering what your take is, what your thoughts are for you as an artist. I think art has everything to do with everything because when I think about well why like sometimes I really do think why are we here and why you know we are kind of making a mess but I think and I think when I say art and artists I don't just mean people that are writing or painting or composing I think I really mean all of us yes because I think that if we have a purpose and yes we do have to clothe ourselves and shelter ourselves and feed ourselves so there's things that we need to do but I think really, if we're here, it's mostly to say, to reflect back and mirror what we see and to be amazed and in wonder mm -hmm. and in gratitude. Mm -hmm. We've had a beautiful fall, which I really feel grateful for because it has been dry. And there was one year, 2017, it was so dry that the, the trees just went brown. But there's so much color. I mean, sometimes I feel like I can't. I have to get bigger to take it all in. I know, I know. And in my the, the journal that I've alluded to, my first thing that I write every day now is something called Noticing Beauty. And I write down, because I'm not a photographer, I don't go around with a camera. I go around saying, oh, I see. And I remember it so that I can write down what I notice. Yes. So I think that to sing, to dance, to tell a story, um, to build a beautiful, dwelling to make beautiful food to tend people beautifully i think it's all art and i think that we are here to really do things that give back in that way whether it's painting a picture whether it's making a bed or yes washing a dish yeah elizabeth this has been great this has been as magical as i thought it would be actually more so would you just tell us what's on the horizon for you? Yeah, my website is elizabethcunninghamwrites.com. You can get um, sign up for my newsletter, which I won't, don't write very often. But I'm still writing. I'm writing another book. I'm writing a book that is more in the realm of fairy tale because I, I can't. I tried for a year to write a book that was sort of contemporary in this world, and it's like, I can't do it. There's too much happening. So I'm writing another fairy tale. I take care of my garden and my kitty. and. And All the Perils of the Night is the latest yeah. book. And uh, I'm yeah. going to hold it up with Murder at the Rome Show because they're so pretty together. And Ray Carrington Dillinger designed these beautiful covers. Yeah, they covers. I mean, he hand designed these. He's a very, and they're musicians and, oh, they have so many things going on. They do. But they do a beautiful job with these books. And they're fun. Just because you love Maeve doesn't mean you won't love murder at the rummer sale and all the perils of this night. Up next, the lightning round of quirky questions. What makes you awestruck makes you say wow? Well, I think we just talked about a lot of it, like wandering around in the autumn. But I think particularly, um, I came to gardening, flower gardening very late in life. That really opened my eyes to plants. Mm -hmm. So I walk around seeing as much as I can and that's kind of how I learn I haven't really taken courses or read too many books I just watch and I go wow wow <laughs> like the other day I saw this little tiny pink flower that is grows in the grass mostly in the summer there's there was one just blooming the other day and it's like wow 
while you're still there. Yeah. What is the kindest thing someone has ever done for you? So I, I decided to go with the first thing that came into my head because there's too many. But I remember when one of our, an old, old kitty, one of our, our first cat in our family um, had to be euthanized and we had to take her to the vet. And I was holding her in my arms and I was crying. And the whole family was with me, both my children and my husband. And my daughter took a tissue and wiped my tears. Mm. I was holding the cat, teenager at the time, and it was particularly touching. What is your favorite tree? Oh, favorite tree. Oh, that's another hard one. But I think I have, and I don't know that this was always so, but I have a special relationship with oaks. Ah, yes. Red oaks and white oaks and all kinds of oaks. And I love beaches also because that word means book, actually. I love their mm-hmm. What is your favorite tree now? Oh, there's um in the hedgerows, probably it's considered invasive. I just learned its name this year. It's called Autumn Olive. It has sort of silvery leaves. And for about a week or two in the spring, it's got little white flowers that give off a scent that I call the scent of heaven. Mm. That's my favorite scent. Mm. And then they have little berries in the fall, which I tasted. But that I live for that moment in spring when they come out and I can walk all around the yard and the field smell. What is it called? It's called called autumn olive. It it, it has silvery leaves and it blooms in the spring. And the blooms are, you know, they're just little white blooms, but that scent is amazing. Mm. And it's considered, of course, it's considered invasive, but I love it. What is your least favorite smell? Diesel fuel. Oh, and uh, what is your favorite kitchen utensil? I I really am not a very inventive tool user, but I have a little serrated knife. I like it because it's very firm and I can cut pretty much anything with it unless I need to use a wok knife or something. It's great. I love it. And I say, where's my knife when I can't find it? Ah, uh, thank you. Thank you for being a good sport with those lightning round of questions. It's kind of fun to hear what people say, and I appreciate oh, it. It is a great question. Yeah. <laughs> thank you, Elizabeth. Thank you thank so you, much for, for this time. Yeah. I wish wish you great success with Perils of the Night, your new book that you're working on, and all the books and writing and music yet to come in poetry. Just really grateful for this yeah. shared time this evening. Thank and, you. and right back at you. You have been listening to What's Art Got to Do With It? I'm Deb Ondo. You can follow Elizabeth via her website at elizabethcunninghamwrites.com. And if you enjoyed the show, please head over to iTunes and submit a review so more listeners can find us. Thank you for being here.